When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to the podcast. And uh, I'm Gary Bain. I'm here with the wonder that is Peter Hart. Hello. You're feeling a bit pathetic today, Pete. Feeling, feeling down in the dumps. Oh, dear. It's what you just told me. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, this will soon uh, bring you out of being down in the dumps, or perhaps it won't, actually, because today we're going to be talking about the ba- Battle of Gully Ravine on or about, close enough, 28th of June, 1915. <laughs> yeah, we'd better set the scene for it. Uh, and uh, we've, we've done a podcast on, on, on the battle that preceded it. That was the third Battle of Grithia, uh, Gary, which was uh, in itself followed up from, guess what? The second Battle of Grithia, Which yeah. was after... There was a first Battle of Grithia, but that but seems to be overlooked. About, yeah. Nobody knows about that. Uh, and uh, so after the third Battle of Grithia on the 4th of June... Um, it, 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 Hellas was just, it was just a complete stalemate. They, they just seemed to be, both sides couldn't make any headway. They, they, both sides just seemed to be stuck on this minute three miles by three miles or three by four miles peninsula without any bloody hope whatsoever. I mean. So why didn't they pull out? What did the Germans think at that point? Germans? Germans? Germans. Generals. <laughs> What did the German generals think? <laughs> well, they were very good point, Gary. He said, rescuing Lee. <laughs> save me, Pete, save me. <laughs> Lehmann von Saunders, the German general. Um, but, well, really, they're, they're, they're just basically holding the ring at this point. They've decided to stop making, stop laughing at holding the ring. Um, they're just basically holding their, their, their positions. But the, the, the British generals and, uh, and the French... So who's it, who, who are the British generals? Well, that, well you know well, one our of friends, them. Uh, Aylmer Hunter Weston, isn't it? Yeah. And he's commanding the British 8th Corps, I and think. what rank is he then, then? I think he's Lieutenant General, isn't he? And he is. And what rank had he been just a, a year and three months before? Oh, I think he was a Lieutenant Colonel. He something was. Like and that. that's, uh, that's Actually, amazing. Actually, that's a great point, isn't it? That's just so, 12 months. Yeah, 12 and a bit months. <laughs> Your maths is as good as mine sometimes. And and who was the French general? The French general was Henri Girard, oh, who commanded the Corps Expeditionnaire d'Orient. Oh, 
dear, dear. And uh, they, they, the, the two of them and Hamilton behind them, because the overall commander is, of course, uh, the Middle Eastern Expeditionary Force, and that is General Sir Ian Hamilton, who we all know. Um, never uh, heard of him. Never heard of him. That's the spirit. And to, the, the, the three generals firmly believe that they had to maintain a continuous pressure on the Turks. Uh, and they come up, they, they realise they can't make another general advance. And the, um, they, they come up with something else. And, and that is basically what another old friend of yours, uh, Sir uh, Henry Rawlinson, back in, in, in on the Western Front, was actually feeling his way towards at this time, this very time after the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle. And this is a type of bite and hold. Bite and hold. Well, bite and hold? Yeah. Hang on a minute. They, they, have they got the artillery for that? Have they got the shells for that? Don't forget, in other podcasts we've mentioned, they're, they're right in the middle of a shell shortage. How, how do they do that then? It's 1915. Well, uh, they're going to try their best to do bite and hold. Is then uh, bite and hold is based entirely around uh, around artillery. But what they decide is they concentrate all possible, and that's the problem. All that's possible. Uh, it might not be enough, but it's everything they've got. Yeah, uh, to support very localized attacks, and their idea is to bite off a small chunk of the Turkish line, a distinct small chunk, and then use basically a wall of shells. Uh, to help the infantry hold off the inevitable uh, uh, Turkish counterattacks, because the Turks have got the German-style policy of counterattacking at all thing, all costs. Uh, guess who the British gave the honour of trying out these new tactics? That'd be the French. Tears, guys, the honour, and enjoy every minute of it. And and what they do, uh, uh, they do try it. Twenty-first of June, they 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 attack. Now, where they attack is they're on the right of the British line, the position of honour and the most dangerous position, of course, with being fired at from all sides uh, across the straits. Uh, they are uh, uh, facing the, the Kerev's Dare um, Valley and uh, in front of them they have the Harico and Quadrilateral Redoubts, which dominate the Kerev's Spur. Uh, we will put a map up of this. And they... Um, We've talked about this, uh, we did a podcast on the French, and on the 21st of June they concentrate all their artillery, uh, every bloody gun, every shell they can, they blast the way forward and they do take the Harico Redoubt. They don't take the quadrilateral, but they do take the uh, the Harico. Um, and uh, is this painless, Gary? No, I mean, it's a great, it's great success. It is a great but success. But over 2,500 killed and wounded, Pete. So, uh, like most bite-and-hold actions, and this is true of the Western Front at all, it's an extremely painful... It's, it's almost the worst form of attritional warfare in some ways. People don't realise this. It's grinding your way forward. Uh, it's then the turn of the British 29th Division. Now, that, that's, that had been commanded by uh, General, uh, Hunter Weston, but it's now commanded by somebody else. Who, and this is a name to, to, to run off the tongue. Who is it, Gary? Yeah, it sounds as if he's actually in command of the... Uh... Uh, the wrong bar, he's in the wrong army. His name's Major General Beauvoir de Lille. Beauvoir de Lille. Mm. I wonder if his aunt's pen is in the garden. Cool. Now, they, they try a narrow front assault, don't they, on the on the left flank of Hellis on the 28th of June. And that's what we're talking about today. So that's what this is about. Uh, so where are they going? Well, um, uh, look at your map and uh, uh, they're going to attack... Uh, they make it, it's got two phases. First phase, they're going to attack on Fir Tree Spur, the formidable Boomerang Redoubt, and the H-12 
trenches. That's on Fir Tree Spur. Then along the Gully Spur, that's next to the sea, between Gully Ravine and the sea, uh, they're going to attack a series of five trenches. And they number back, uh, Gary, from J9, that's the nearest to the, the front line, back to J13, which is level with uh, what you would call the Nuri Yamut uh, Memorial. Uh, it wasn't yep. there then, of yep. course. Uh, but that gives you a good picture. They were also going to attack up the Gully Ravine, which is in between the uh, uh, Tree Spur and Gully Spur. Uh, they, and they wanted to reach where the Nuller tributary joins the main gully. And that is where we walk down from Nuriyamut. Uh, sorry, that doesn't help the rest of them, does it? No. Sorry, other people. <laughs> you could all bugger off for a minute while I give Gary a personal... Uh, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, and you can see it on the map. It's the main tributary joins the main gully, if you see what I mean. Now, what what artillery support do they get, Gary? You're worried about the artillery well, support. I what am. have they got? Well, they're, they're supported by some 77 guns or, or howitzers, and, and by dint of expending something approaching half the total of British ammunition supply at Hellis, they managed to fire just over 16,000 rounds during the battle. And that's now, the whole battle. That, yeah. Now, you and I have had this conversation because... Whilst that's a lot, if you equate that to what's happening on the Western Front, certainly later in the war, it doesn't sound a lot, but it's half of what they've got available. Uh, it's, uh, it's bugger all, to use a, a highly technical army term. Uh, yeah, I, I recognise that. Uh, and uh, it's well short of what's required for, 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 for... I mean, they've condensed the area of attack, but have they, have they made it condensed enough? Have they made it... Sh- the frontage short enough? That's the, the question. Um, and the answer is, no, they hadn't. And what they do is they concentrate most of the guns in what they consider the most important part. Now, that's the gully spur. That's the left between the sea and the ravine and the ravine itself. Um, and uh, the attack on the H-12 trenches on Fir Tree Spur, that's going to be an afterthought. Uh, and so they do not put as many guns on there. Now, Hunter Weston... Uh, is that he's, he's not stupid. We did have we did try and he he points out that this is not right, and and this is a quote from uh, his uh, his command, commander royal artillery. Yeah, who is he? Who it's is he? Brigadier General Sir Hugh Simpson Bakey uh, from HQ Eighth Corps. And he says this, Before the action, the corps commander sent for me to say that he did not consider that enough guns and ammunition had been allotted to this portion of the Turkish trenches. I replied that I agreed, but that there were no more available, and that to reduce the bombardment of the hostile trenches on the left of our front would gravely prejudice the success of the 29th Division in that Water, and that I understood success there was more vital than on the right flank. After consultation with the General Officer Commanding 29th Division, the Corps Commander, that's Hunter Weston, agreed with my allotment of the artillery. We then did our utmost to obtain the loan of more guns from the French without success. The French probably didn't want to move them right away across to the left flank. They were normally pretty cooperative. Now, uh, this is interesting to me and you because this is that is the decision that is going to cost the lives of the 52nd Division who attack on, uh, on that fir tree spur, and which we're going, to, we're going to have a lot of very emotive quotes. And if you want to know why those men died, were wounded, were uh, tormented by, by, by what happened, that's the reason. That's, 
That's where it originates in that decision. These men are the men who took that decision. Did they have much choice? What do you think? No, not a lot, really. Now, Brigadier General William Marshall, who was commanding the assault in 87th Brigade, he did, however, request French assistance to eradicate a Turkish redoubt which was positioned on the right of Gully Ravine, which would enfilade the advance now, of his men along Gully Spur. Is, that is a boomerang redoubt. Now, that's very obvious where that is. Uh, we've been there, and you, it, it's in an open field now, but you can still just about see where it was. And what's interesting is, from there, you can see all across, across the Gully Ravine, and you can see all across uh, the, the, uh, the Gully Spur. Uh, so this is important. And uh, Brig you're going to be Brigadier General William Marshall, uh, Headquarters 87 Brigade, who, who, very, who explains this better than ever I could. The divisional orders for the attack reached me on the 26th and, curiously enough, omitted all mention of the Boomerang Redoubt, which would enfilade our projected attack at close range. I represented this but was told that, if my brigade were successful in taking the trenches, the Boomerang would ipso facto fail. Fall. Fall. To this I replied that that would no doubt be the case, but a great many of my own men would also fall. Eventually, it was arranged that we should take the boomerang five minutes before zero hour. A trench mortar, nicknamed La Damoiselle, wow. was lent to us by General Gerald, and this, under charge of a French Sioux officer, duly arrived and was dug in such a position that it could pump its death-dealing bombs, 100-pound melanite bombs, bang into the dangerous boomerang redoubt. The Sioux officer was most particular about the emplacement for La Damoiselle and about arrangements for his own protection. As he very wisely said, Elle est bon, mais très, très dangereux. Wonderful pronunciation. Wonderful. Now, as it happens, uh, he, he, uh, Marshall is also responsible for something that... that I think you found quite fascinating when, when, when well, he was responsible for the what ends up as the red triangle symbol of the 29th division. Because uh, when they attacked, they were given strange pieces of tin cut in the shape of uh, an equilateral triangle with sides about 12 inches long. Now you're going to be uh, uh, Marshall again from uh, from 50, uh, 87th uh, Brigade. Um, now tell us what you, what what happens. What what? How do you invent this, Gary? Oh, sorry, William. Sorry. <laughs> I was down talking to General Briggs, who's the uh, CRA 29th Division, at his observation post, when a discussion arose as to the best means of distinguishing the trenches occupied by our men, when we had made an advance and taken trenches from the enemy. The system of the infantry carrying forward screens, khaki on the side towards the enemy and red on the side towards our guns, had been a failure because in many cases the Turks had recaptured trenches by counter-attack. The men in charge of the screens had been killed and the screens left in position or otherwise utilised by the enemy. Looking from Breek's observation post, our trenches were well defined by a line of shimmering empty ration tins at the back of them. I therefore suggested that instead of carrying screens or flags, each man should carry a piece of tin in his haversack and these tin discs could be flashed from newly won trenches. The idea was taken up and improved on. In future, each man in the attacking line carried a triangular piece of tin on his back. This method proved of immense value to our gunners during all our further attacks, 
the flashing line of tin being perfectly visible at ranges when the men themselves were indistinguishable. And that's, uh, that's where the triangle symbol came from. I think they wore smaller ones uh, on the Somme, actually. Um, now, um, uh, so, so what's happening next? Well, we're, we're up to the point of, 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 of the bombardment. Now, the, the, first of all, the French mortar, La Demoiselle, opens up at 6 o'clock on the 28th of June. Uh, and there may have been more than one of them, by the way. And they certainly make their mark on the boomerang redoubt. And I'm going to be Petty Officer F.W. Johnson. Sorry to be formal, Gary, but uh, you know how it is. And Petty. And, and sorry to be Petty as well, yes. Uh, but, Gary, you've often complained about my petty nature. I'm going to, of the Royal Naval Air Service. He's a, he's a machine gunner. Uh, and he says this. The first of these torpedoes was fired at 6 a.m. Its flight was easy to follow and was wonderfully fascinating, reaching a height of perhaps 200 feet and then appearing to be directly overhead. It slowly turned over and still more slowly, it seemed, began to descend. It almost imperceptibly drew away from us and landed with a dull thud in the outer works on the outer works of the boomerang. A remarkable silence followed and then tons of earth, sections of entanglements, bodies, clothes and limbs were sent into the sky. A terrific explosion of unparalleled violence causing the earth upon which we stood to tremble and spreading its pungent fumes like a mist over everything and everybody. That was the result. Its terrifying roar re-echoed along the ravine until drowned by the ship's guns at sea. Before the air was clear, another torpedo was fired. Wow, wow. And that's going on for two or three hours, isn't it? Uh, and then at nine o'clock, the main bombardment from the heavy guns. Now, we haven't got many heavy guns. I want to make that clear. They begin to fire and their shells start to fall on the Turkish lines on Gully Spur. Uh, the field artillery, they would open up at uh, 10.20. Along with the support ships. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, the, the uh, what you call them? Uh, yeah, uh, destroyers mostly, I think they were. And this raises a sort of pole of a yellow dust. A pole of yellow dust. A pole, Gary. I pulled that in deliberately. <laughs> now that covers the whole battlefield, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And you're going to be Petty Officer F.W. Johnston again. And he says this. For an hour and a half, they sent death itself into the enemy positions. Parapet... After parapet went into the air, accompanied by bodies and rags, the air became so thick that at the close of the bombardment, to see a yard in any direction was impossible. It reminded me of a London fog, green in places to a shade of brown. I've never seen a London fog green to brown, but that was probably during the smog days before when we were before we were born. Yeah. Now the concentration of such resources as were available onto such a tightly controlled target. Just the boomerang, this yeah. is mainly. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, it does lead to success. The bombardment lifted at 10.45, and as Marshall had planned, the boomerang redoubt was rushed by the 1st Border Regiment. And you're going to be one of them. You're going to be Private Sidney Evans of the 1st Borders. What does he say? At 10.40am, we were ordered to fix bayonets, and the artillery resorts to rapid fire, thus redoubling the fury of the bombardment. High explosive and shrapnel shell is now falling in a veritable howl onto the enemy's trenches and it seems impossible that any of them can live through it. One more minute and the word READY is passed along. In that one minute we unconsciously take one look at the sun and the sea and involuntarily commend our bodies and souls to our maker and then 
before we realise it, a hoarse shout of, Hola! And we are up the ladders and racing like the wind for the redoubt, about 800 yards distant. No sooner are we over than a tremendous burst of rifle and machine gun fire meets us. Here and there, a man stumbles and falls by the way, but we race on and are soon on the trench. The enemy, however, did not wait, and we find our entry unopposed. Hastily, we set to work to reconstruct the shattered parapet of the trench as far as possible in anticipation of a counter-attack. Wow, now they run straight. They're running from there. Now, what did I say that Petty Officer F.W. Johnson, what did I say he was? He's part of the machine gun team. He was, and he done off have a good time. It's sad for the Turks, but for him, it's a great moment. He says this, My gun, trained on the main boomerang sap, now found a target. Dozens and dozens of Turks in their endeavours to get away rushed from the redoubt to the cliffside, and incidentally into the fire of my, from my gun. Three belts were hurriedly got through before the khaki of our own troops came in pursuit, showing that the boomerang was in our hands. Now, that's been a great success. So this is the preliminary attack just to take the boomerang that is just above the Gully Ravine on the, uh, on the uh, eastern side uh, and so that they can't fire into the attack on the other side of the gully. Uh, but now they're going to have the main attack. So when's that set for? Well, the main attack went in at 11 o'clock. And, uh, Who's Gen- watching? General Sir Ian Hamilton was watching from an observation post which was set back from the battlefield. Now, he found the triangles and a, an, an enchanting vista. He always was a, a man with a poetic bend. He was. And General Sir Ian Hamilton says this. The spectacle was extraordinary. From my post, I could follow the movements of every man. One moment after 11am, the smoke pall lifted and moved slowly on with a thousand sparkles of light in its wake, as if someone had quite suddenly flung a big handful of diamonds onto the landscape. Now, as the 1st Border Regiment consolidated in the boomerang, they had a rather closer view of the main 80th Brigade attack on Gully Spur. Well, we've been there. It's just a matter of 100, well, 80 to 100 yards. Yeah, just, you can just see cr- quite clearly. Now, this is Private Sidney Evans of the 1st Border Regiment. and uh, So he's in the boomerang. Now. He's in the boomerang and he says this. Wave after wave of khaki-clad troops sweep over their trenches and rush one Turkish trench after another. Behind come the supports marching in a steady, unwavering line with sloped arms, their bayonets glittering in the sunlight. It's a fine sight and we give them an encouraging cheer as they pass our position. The enemy artillery uh, no. the enemy artillery now switch their artillery fire onto this advancing line but with little effect. Gaps occur here and there as the shrapnel mows its way through them, but they close up as if on parade and steadily advance onwards. Now, the the the, the bombardment. I mean, what what impact do you think it's had on the the Turks in in those in those J trenches? You know, nine, ten, eleven. Well, they're not going to be in any sort of fit state to put up any prolonged resistance, and and you know, the first two lines of trenches are actually captured relatively easily. So the 87th Brigade has does, does done well. And then the 86th Brigade comes through, leaps, leapfrogs through them. It's all quite modern, isn't it? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, But then the, it, it, it makes more progress. But then the Turks counterattack, uh, uh, as they always will do. Uh, one weapon in particular is evident. What would that be? Well, they, they, <laughs> the Turks themselves are, are, are attack with a, a considerable vigour, Pete. But it's behind a hail of bombs. 
Um, they are held off and the captured lines are secured. And Private Daniel Joyner, who was in the second wave with the first Kings and Scottish Borderers, as they went forward into the attack, says this. And you're going to be Private Daniel I am. Joyner. While waiting beneath the parapet, it was torture. This is a classic going over the top business again. Uh, hell. <laughs> the sensations felt going over the parapet, expected to be hit anywhere. Awful. But as soon as you realise you're over safe, you lose all such thoughts and feelings. Mad. But men are falling right and left. They're, they're hardly noticed. One thought only exists, the first trench. It is almost impossible to remember afterwards whether, whether you walked, ran, crawled or flew. I bet he didn't fly. Over the intervening ground. The South Wales borderers have reached the first line and are engaging the enemy. We're soon with them and materially assist them. Allah, Allah, the Turk cries as he puts his hand up, while another tries to bury himself in the ground out of reach of our bayonets. Others kneel and fire until their magazine is discharged. Then they try and run away. They are soon all accounted for, and the first line is ours. There's a, there's a grimness about that. Yeah, uh, taking many prisoners, do you think? No, I don't. it doesn't sound like it, does it? Now, on their left flank, the four battalions of the 29th Indian Brigade, which is commanded by Brigadier General Herbert Cox, were attacking along the beach and cliffs on the left of the galley spur. Now, I want to make a bit of a fuss about this, but sadly, I've got no quotes. I really did look. I looked in Stanley's book. I looked in the, the regimental histories, but there just aren't quotes about it. But this is quite a major achievement because what happens uh, in the first assault, the second, tenth Gurkha rifles, they do brilliantly, Gary. They advance in that area between the sea. Though Those gullies and hills between the top of the cliff and the, and the sea, uh, they, they go a thousand yards. And you, there's photographs, I might put one up, of you in, the, in that sort of ground. You don't look as if you could go a thousand yards, Gary. It, it's, it's a hell of achievement. They, ca they capture several Turkish lines and they get as far as Fusilier Bluff. Um, uh, which uh, which is where the Nuri Yamut Memorial is. Again, I'm sorry to keep using it. I'll explain it a bit later. Uh, and then they followed up. Who follows them up? The first, fifth, or the first, sixth Gurkha rifle, rifles following them up. They wheel right, and then again, they push towards the Nala tributary in the Gully Ravine. Now, um, so overall, would you what would you say about the attack on the along Gully Spur? Well, it, it's sounds, a success, it sounds relatively successful, I think, given the, the, the conditions and everything that could be expected. Now, uh, how is it going to be for 156 Brigade of 52nd Division? Now, they're attacking the H trenches, H12 in particular, on Fir Tree Spur. Now, these are the ones that aren't going to have quite so much artillery, if any, supporting them. I mean, there's bugger all for them, isn't there? And uh, we've chosen, uh, it's tracking along with my book on Gallipoli, we've chosen one battalion because the, the witness that from that battalion seems to sum it up, doesn't he? Um, and um, uh, what it is, is uh, the battalion is the 1st 8th Scottish Rifles. And Gary, you're going to be Major James Findlay. Now, you've just taken over yeah, command. the week just, before. Uh, and you've got an inexperienced battalion. They've only just arrived at Gallipoli and uh, they're attacking... Uh, on the on that front, and uh, they, they, you're going to read a series of extracts, and I find, I think that I think it's emotionally quite uh, heartrending for this poor officer seeing his battalion destroyed. But you're going to tell the story, Major James Findlay, First Eight Scottish Rifles. I do not think that many of us got much sleep. I know that to me the night was slow in passing, but dawn came at last, cool and beautiful, with a hint of the coming heat, 
and the dried up sparse scrub had been freshened by the night's dewfall. One was impressed by the good heart of all ranks, but whether it was premonition or merely the strain of newly acquired responsibility, I could not feel the buoyancy of anticipated success. I remember going round the line in the early morning and finding that there was some difficulty about the planks which the support of reserve companies had to put across the front trenches to facilitate passage, but these eventually arrived in time. The artillery bombardment which took place from 0900 to 1100 was, even to a mind then inexperienced in a real bombardment, quite too too futile. But it drew down upon us, naturally a retaliatory shelling. How slowly these minutes from 1055 to 11 passed. Centuries of time seemed to go by. One became conscious of saying the silliest things all the while painfully thinking, it may be the last time I shall see these fellows alive. Prompt, at 11 o'clock, the whistles blew. Now, I, I, I really like this chap's writing. Uh, I think he sums it up beautifully. Uh, that's, that's a lovely bit of writing. That really sets the scene before they go over the top. His men go over. Remember, he's a colonel. No, well, he's acting colonel. He's a major. But he, he stays back in the trenches. He, what happens to his men? They get hit by a just a devastating uh, stream of fire from all sides, basically. And Findlay realises the attack's breaking down in no man's land. Uh, so he's sent back to brigade for, for reinforcements. And then he moves forward, moving up a sap with his adjutant. Now, his adjutant's called Captain Charles Bramwell. Uh, we'll, we'll be mentioning these names, so I'm, I'm going through them. And he also has with him his signal officer, uh, someone I particularly want you to note because he, he's a brave lad. And uh, it's quite sad as well what happens to him. Lieutenant Tom Stout. Uh, and those three together, the command of the battalion, are going forward to try and establish a forward headquarters. Now, they don't really get very far. Uh, do you think their ranks any defence against bullets, Gary? Not at all. And Major James Findlay says, Bramwell and I then pushed our way up the sap, which for a short distance concealed us, but got shallower as we went along until first our heads, then our shoulders, and then the most of our bodies were exposed. We soon arrived at Pattison's bombing party, which I had sent up this sap. He'd been killed, and those of his men that were left were lying flat. They could not get on as the sap rose a few yards in front of them to the ground level, and the leading man was lying in only about 18 inches of cover. In any case, they were still some 50 yards from the enemy trenches. Bullets were spattering all around us and we seemed to bear charmed lives until, just as we arrived at the rear of this party, Bramwell fell at my side, shot through the mouth. He said not a word and I am glad to think that he was killed outright. I made up my mind that the only thing to be done was to collect what men there were and make a dash for it. I told this to Stout and stooping down to pick up a rifle, I was shot in the neck. At the moment, I didn't feel much But when I saw the blood spurt forward, I supposed that it had got my jugular vein. I stuck a handkerchief round my neck and tried to get on, but I was bowled over by a hit in the shoulder. I tumbled back over some poor devil and for a minute or two tried to collect myself. Up came young Stout and said, I'm going to try to carry you back, sir, but I wouldn't let him. I think this is just a marvellous but, I mean, yeah, there he is trying to organise. He's not when he says he's going to make a rush. He's going to make a rush forward that last fifty yards. Uh, when he's wounded, shot, Gary shot through the throat. Thinks it's got his jugular. 
probably hasn't, but I mean, it's still bleeding like buggery. And he's still trying, trying to get on until he's hit again. Uh, anyway, uh, and and also the the courage of young Stout, you know, come and, and I'll carry you back, sir. But then he says no, no, because he realised that Stout's needed. He's the signal officer. Anyway, um, everyone around him can see that he's badly wounded, and but Finley's just. What's what's in his mind? Well, he's obsessed with the idea that he's got to re-establish his forward headquarters and coordinate the next stage of the attack. And in the end, Tom Stout simply ignores him. And Major James Findlay says this. I told Stout to send another runner for reinforcements. A few minutes later, he came back and took me by the shoulders and some other good fellow lifted me by the feet. And together, they got me back some 10 yards. And though a bullet got me in the flesh of the thigh... I was now comparatively sheltered while they were still exposed. It was then that a splinter of shell blew off Tommy Stout's head and the other man was hit simultaneously. Gallant lads, God rest them. Um, Funny, just going through this now, it makes me, we must go and look at, uh, I presume he hasn't got a grave, Stout, but we must look at him on the Hellas Memorial. I know that doesn't do anybody any good. But I just think uh, this story uh, just resonates with me. It really does. Uh, what a brave chap Stout was. Uh, good for him. Uh, anyway, uh, Finley himself is is brave. He manages to stagger back to the lines. And uh, what state are you in, Gary? Just give me an idea of of, of what, what state you're in. Well, let's bear, bear in mind he's now been hit three times, although he described the last one as just a minor flesh wound. Um, he's not... He's in a really dreadful state by by now. He's either very lucky or unlucky, depending on one's viewpoint, because he's suffered some seven major wounds, as well as a liberal sprinkling of, sprinkling of uh, minor scrapes from bomb fragments. Now, his battalion, they've <laughs> suffered over 400 casualties, and 25 of the 26 officers have been hit. Not good percentage chances if you're an officer in that battalion, then? No, not good at all, is it? And I just want to say that if what you or I suffered one of those minor scrapes with a with a bomb fragment, one, I think just one of yeah, them, one. I think we'd be uh, moaning. Yeah. Uh, you, of course, never moan, so you'd be. Uh, I'd putting, be commenting on them. You'd be commenting on it, whereas I'd be moaning. But like, but no. think about his own words there. He mentions the three gunshot wounds he gets: the one to the throat, the one to the shoulder, the one to the thigh. He doesn't even mention anything else, uh, and he's he's got seven injuries. It's it's. Uh, and, and and also just four hundred casualties. And I know we joke about the Scots a lot. Uh, and and but but what happened to these uh, these these Scottish battalions of the fifty second division is outrageous. It it is terrible. And uh, uh, it uh, we've been in that field. I've taken you across that field, so to speak. And uh, we've stood there. And uh, we've often we've often walked up Gully Ravine, and we're a little bit tired and footsore by there. And we have to walk across that field towards. Uh, uh, the, the the big cemetery, the name of which won't come to me just at the moment. Mm. Um, and when you think of, we were just, we're a bit tired. Just compare it to those poor lads that day. Uh, it, it's beyond belief. Uh, but uh, but the, it, that's pretty well what happens to everybody in one five six brigade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's there's uh, there's high casualties. There are some minor gains on the left. Well, I've got a story, haven't I, uh, for, of one where they make they, they they get to the second line. This is Le- Lieutenant Leslie Grant, and he's in the four, first fourth Royal Scots. Um, and he says this. Uh, this is a graphic one. Uh, close your ears at times in this. And also, it, it's just bloody horrible at times. He says this. 
Uh, Bob yelled, come on, boys. Uh, I gave him a leg up and Jimmy Fleck shoved me up just at his heels. When we got, got up over the parapet, my platoon were, were practically enfiladed. The air seemed thick with bullets. I remember thinking the puffs of sand all around were awfully funny. Uh, the platoon started going too much to the left. I yelled to them to keep to the right, but I hardly heard my own voice for the row. Uh, I want you to note, by the way, I think I think there's an element of hysteria throughout this interview that comes out. And I don't blame him, by the way, but the gap between my platoon and D Company on the right got rapidly wider. I dashed off to the right, thinking that they would follow. I crossed an old trench and then saw the Turkish trench, perhaps 20 yards further on. Looked round and I suddenly realised I was all alone. C and D Companies were perhaps 150 yards apart and I was about midway between. I think perhaps some cells of one's brain must be numb because I don't seem to have had the slightest sense of danger at any time. It reminded me of nothing so much as a football match, the thrill of a good dribble up the field. <laughs> I reached the Turkish trench and found it almost battered to pieces. Further on, further along on either side, it wasn't so bad and there were a lot of Turks about putting up a good fight. By the mercy of Providence, I had struck a bit which was almost obliterated. I sank in almost to my knees in the soft earth. The, the place was in a fearful mess. Blood everywhere. Arms, legs, entrails lying around. There was only one man who tried to put up a fight, although what looked like an officer badly wounded tried to get me with his revolver. It sounds horrible in cold blood, but this time... All that is savage in one seemed to be on top. I remember two things distinctly. One was wanting to cut off a man's ears and keep them as a trophy. The other was jumping on the dead, hacking their faces with my feet or crashing my rifle into them. Looking along to my left, I saw dozens of our men. They came on to within a yard or two of the trench, seemed to hesitate, then dashed into it. Men fought with their rifles, their feet, their bare fists, a pick, a shovel, anything. But the orders had been given, go for the second trench, never mind the first. So it was on again. I scrambled out. Something seemed to force me on and I started running again. We'll have to leave his story later on. They don't manage to hold the, the second line, but they do make some progress. But that fighting, how raw is that? And, and, and how strangely, his, sort of the hysteria in what he describes, he quite frankly describes as well. Yeah, it's shocking. Now... On Fir Tree Spur, the artillery preparation had not been anywhere near as devastating as on Gully Spur, although the 1st, 4th and 1st, 7th Royal Scots managed to reach the Turks' second line to their right, as we've seen, the 1st, 8th Scottish rifles were ripped to shreds by heavy machine guns. So fire. on the left, near the gully, the 1st, 4th and 1st, 7th make a bit of progress, yeah, uh, but yeah, on the right, for old 1st, 8th Scottish, that's the one... You were in Findlay, were you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, now, the Brigade Reserve forward go forward. The first seven Scottish rivals, did they do any better? Well, they a little better, but only a few of them reach the Turkish front line before, inevitably, they're driven back. Now, they make further efforts throughout the day, but even when 88th Brigade from 29th Division tries to help, nothing else is achieved. And eventually they, they consolidate the very minor gains they've made on the, on the right-hand section, on the, on, on the Fir Tree Spur. Um, attempts by the first Dublin Fusiliers to attack up Gully Ravine, they, 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 don't, they meet with a little success, a bit of success, and, and they eventually get a, a front line. It's weird, it bend, and you've seen it. It bends from Fusilier Bluff 
right across or about 100 yards in front of the uh, the nuller uh, till it meets the gully ravine it's sort of diagonally across the spur in the strangest manner um uh, and then it, it links uh, to, uh, it, it, then it crosses gully ravine and links onto the bits of h12 that have been collect captured by first fourth uh, royal scots now uh, the men of uh, the king's and scottish borders they, they've then got an unpleasant task what's that well, they're ordered to clear out Gully Ravine of the, uh, and, and I'm using these words as an alternative, tangled detritus of war. Mm. Yeah. Proves now, it proves an unforgettable task. And Private Daniel Joyner of First King's Own Scottish Border says this. Oh, well, you're not going to like this. This is not nice as well. Both sides of the gully were, 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 were lined with what, what had been Turkish shelters. Uh, they were in appearance like a farmhouse outhouse. They, they, they were still shelters, but not for live Turks. As we proceeded down the gully, we had to drag the dead bodies into them to make room for the traffic. Further down, pools of stagnant water with green, evil-smelling slime had to be passed. We used to have great fun going up the gully trying to push people in that, if you remember. Mm. Often the skeleton of some unknown soldier floated on the top. That's not so funny, is it? The dead had to be disposed of. There were too many to bury and not uh, it was not sanitary. Cremation was decided upon. Each sergeant with 12 men was instructed to prepare a fire from the wood of the Turkish shelters. The bodies, after being searched, were then put on it. What a nice, pleasant job. Count had to be kept of the number cremated. One head, two arms, one body and two legs to count as one man. The sun was already having its effect on them. Respirators had to be warm. That's because of the stench of the corpses. All scruples had to be laid aside and, and just get on with it. Steady there. Don't lose that leg. It's only hanging on by the trousers. Bring that head here. That completes another man. Yep, bring that leg. We only want a body now to make another man. <laughs> the fires blazed upon the ground of Gully Ravine. So hot did the fires get, we were forced to put sand on. It's too hot now to place them on, so we throw them on. Uh, we have luckily forgotten we're human beings. It's just, a, it's just awful, awful. And we've been in that valley. We know exactly where all this took place. It's in between, well, the boomerang and, uh, and uh, where, where, where the front line ends uh, uh, at uh, Border Redow, it became called. Um, what were the Turks doing? What would they do? Well, they're busy counter-attacking on Gully Spur Pete. The, uh, the series of trenches running across the spur and into the Nulla tributary were the scene of murderous fighting as the Turks used their superior bombs to try and blast the British and Indian troops out. So we're still using ho uh, improvised yep. jam mainly jam-tins mainly. Um, now, um, what is the approach to the Turks adopt in attacking? Well, they're, they're almost careless of casualties they they careless of everything they're careless of everything yeah and 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 the turks continue to launch massed attacks out of the nala across gully spur so this isn't subtle at all this is just massed no weight of numbers no and we've mentioned before the the turkish troops were were really good in defense they were but they had the same approach when attacking and the, and they're they're almost as the british you mean yeah they're almost uh callous in, uh, of their own men in in the attack and uh, they're, they're coming across Gully Spur and down Gully Ravine. And once more, you're going to be Private Joiner uh, because he and his company are ordered forward to support the South Wales border on the front line. 
And uh, I'm joined, uh, as I said, uh, as you said, Private Dan- Daniel Joyner, first KOSB, and he says this, on they came, he means the Turks, crowd after crowd. The machine guns were mowing them down. Those who managed to gain, get, uh, gain the, uh, the open were, were under fire from the infantry of either flank. The Ross battery, and the, uh, one of our friends, Ro- Ro- Rob Langham's uh, great-grandfather was in the Ross battery, were, were, was playing attention to the Turkish reinforcements, which were being hurried up. They persevered with this mad attack until 4am next morning. What have they gained? Nothing but a small trench they'd succeeded in digging about 200 yards in front of us. At what cost? To them, a thousand lives. To us, an enormous amount of ammunition, a night's sleep, and a few lives. That's the soldier's attitude. I'm all right. Mm. Although uh, shortly afterwards, he was Private Daniel Joyner's <laughs> wounded in the leg and he's evacuated. That's the end of his campaign. In the in my book, Gallipoli, he's quite a character. You may remember, Gary, he features a lot in the accounts of why uh, the Y Beach landings. Uh, a very interesting chap. Now, the next story is uh, you're going to be Second Lieutenant Roy Laidlaw of the First Royal Munster Fusiliers. Now, this story is about the death of Sergeant Victor Rathfield. He was a South African who was ser- serving with the First Munsters. And what interests me about this story is the responsibility you as Laidlaw feel for his death. Yeah, you can clearly see it's not really his fault, but it- it's a lifelong thing for him. Sergeant Rathfelder came along to me and asked in a voice harsh with thirst, Can I go and get water, sir? The Turks attacked twice more, and then about 3am, Rathfelder returned, a pick handle over one shoulder. From it dangled nine water bottles filled with water. He put them beside me, saying, The boys will be glad of that, sir. Thanks, Rathfelder. Now get some rest behind the Parados. He turned away, and as he did so, I saw two more men shot down in the trench and shouted out, Send two more men into the trench! The sergeant halted to catch the order, which rose faintly above the surrounding din, and then pitched forward, shot through the head, splattering me with his blood and brains. To this day, I blame myself bitterly for having spoken those words. So Rathfield heard him shout the order. Stopped and turned. Just stopped and just picked off. Oh, that's terrible. Now, um, the Turks, they're really bothered by this. And if you think of the, the way, the, 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 it does mean, because the Nuri Memorial, which marks the end at Fusilier Bluff, that is almost level with Krithia. This is a serious advance that the Indians, because it's them mainly, have made. Uh, and uh, they, they, so, so what do the Turks do? It's not just that an immediate counterattack. They order repeated counterattacks from their third and fifth divisions over the next few days. It, it's uh, and, and when's the final effort come? Final effort comes at dawn on the fifth of July, after a, a, a weak preliminary bombardment. Now this is a good point, well made by you, because uh, that, that's something they shared. They don't have much artillery or ammunition either, do they? That's, no. Nope. They launched a, a simultaneous attack all along the line in that area. In that area, amongst those opposing them was Lieutenant Colonel Guy Geddes. Lieutenant Colonel? But I thought he was a captain, Gary, when he landed. He was. A week, a month before. It's a long time in war, isn't it? Uh, He'd recovered from his shoulder wound, which he suffered during the V-Beach landing, and uh, he found himself in command of the Munster Fusiliers holding Worcester Flats trenches. And Lieutenant Colonel Guy Geddes, 1st Royal Munster Fusiliers, says this. The man appeared in particularly good form, 
and the companies in reserve came rushing up to participate and started squabbling with each other to get a shot in. It was really ridiculous and the trenches, of course, far too congested. The attack fizzled out at 0600, a hopeless failure. One peculiar incident was that of a Turk who caught fire and was a living torch lighting up in the dim light, his comrades nearby. A good many Turks, unable to get back to their trenches, lay in the scrub between our lines, but with some judicious shrapnel were flushed like birds to be brought down by our snipers. Yes. That's so, quite matter of fact, isn't well, it, for what he's talking about. It's just, it's, uh, it is matter of fact. Um, uh, he was a good colonel, was uh, Geddes. He proved himself a, a good colonel in, in action. Um, uh, but promoted very quickly, of course, very quickly. I mean, captain to uh, lieutenant colonel in, uh, well, when did they land? The, this 25th of April. So it's uh, six, six, six weeks. My maths is terrible. Uh, May... Yeah. Well, this is uh, down July, weeks. so it's, it's about nineteen. Twenty eighth of Ju- yeah, fifth of July. Yeah, quite right. Sorry. Uh, so that's uh, not quite right. But the the point remains: it's a quick promotion in the army. If you'd been at Gallipoli, Gary, you could have gone from private to something like Lance Corporal. Lance Corporal. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Would you have been? You'd have been one of the few to be demoted at Gallipoli. Now, moving on swiftly. Where's that rum ration? (laughs) Moving on swiftly. Corporal Bain. (laughs) On that dreadful day, the Turks would find that bravery was useless against a combination of artillery, machine guns and rapid fire from well-aimed rifles. Well, that's the essence of it. And uh, thank you for bringing me down to uh, with a you're, bump. You're because welcome, because this is... Uh, and, and this is the thing we've got to look at. It's not just uh, our casualties we have to, in a sense, sort of mourn and, and reflect on and feel sorry for. There's, there's thousands of Turks are hit in these attacks. Between 28th of June and 5th of July, the, the German... The, the, I'm doing Germans. it now. Those Germans get everywhere, though. The Turks reckon they lost some 14,000 casualties. That's their own numbers, That's huh? Yeah, that's uh, so about 5,000 uh, dead, would, that would be. Uh, what do you think the ground was like in front of the British trenches? Just imagine it. Well, certainly the ground in front of the trenches are covered with a huge number of rotting Turkish corpses. It's awful. I mean, it's really difficult to just talk about that because you get that image in your head. That is awful. And they'd stay there for the rest of the campaign because... No truce, then. No, the British steadfastly refused Turkish requests for an armistice for mass burials. Why? Well, they imagined that the Turks might be less willing to attack over a no-man's land sprinkled with their rotting dead, frankly. I think he might be right. And uh, Hunter Weston decides his men would just have to endure the awful stench. And uh, I I do, uh, someone I interviewed, Thomas Baker, said you could smell Hellas three miles off, you know, when you were approaching, because he was coming in as a returned, uh, he'd been wounded and he was brought back and he said you could smell it three miles off. Now this will give some context to us, keep mentioning uh, uh, the Nuri Yamat memorial because many of the bodies would only be gathered up and commemorated decades later when General Nuri Yamat, uh, who was then commanding the Second Turkish Corps from about 1943 to 1945, he sold his own house, Pete, to finance the collection of the bones um, apparently the skulls were like melons in a field. That's what Bullent told us, and, and, and actually uh, Ken Ancelic um, used to say this as well, yeah. And the construction of the memorial that still sits at the top of Fusilier Bluff marks the furthest point the Allies ever got at Hellas. Yeah, we, we love that place, and uh, not just because that's where we meet the van with the ice cream after long walks. It, 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 it's a, a wonderful memorial, 
in a sense to, to, to all those Turkish lads who were killed because they they are just as important just yeah, as important they are and, and I would heartily recommend if you, you want to know a bit more about General Nuri Yamat you can go away and do some study of him he's available on uh, the internet just google him he came to a, a rather sticky end oh, yeah. uh, because he he was uh, involved in a a, 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 a seeming coup against the government involved. yeah um, but he, he's a remarkable man and and uh, you should go and, and perhaps have a look and, and see what you can find out. And I'll certainly be thinking about him next time, well, hopefully in September when, when we stand there yet again and uh, and just, just look around at a wonderful memorial to, to all those Turkish lads who lost their lives, fighting for their country in their country. Uh, doesn't mean any... You don't have to dislike the other side just because you're, you're interested in your side. Now, uh, there, there are lessons... Uh, for the Allied generals um, uh, uh, in the action of 28th of June. And uh, perhaps you'd like to go through them because you're, uh, you're the man with military experience. What, what lessons would you take from it? Well, that you wouldn't want to do it naked. <laughs> that's all. That's a lesson you take from most things in Gallipoli, Gary. Now, let's bear in mind it's not just the 28th of June. It's right the way through into July. But uh, one of the main lessons is that they need to... Uh, focus their attacks that's to concentrate their artillery their limited artillery it bite and hold does have some future yeah and they took a lesson from that as well they they above all they need more artillery so bite and hold is also at the same time impossible yeah. as you rightly said earlier because they haven't got they haven't got enough guns or ammunition but not only artillery more howitzers you've described it previously about the trajectory from a howitzer, how that's useful in entrenched positions, and more high-explosive shells. Because shrapnel's not much use to people who are underground. No. So the, the essence is they have to focus their attacks, they, something like bite and hold, but bite and hold is impossible with the resources they have there. Ah, so that's not good lessons. No. There's also, and you mentioned it earlier, they need more bombs to help counter the Turkish counterattacks. The it, Turkish were, were far better equipped. Their Mills bombs would only arrive very late at Gallipoli. In fact, they're never really used in action. No. Uh, so they're using uh, improvised, they're using improvised bombs and, uh, and the cricket ball bombs. That's all they've got. None of them were which any good. Now, Hunter Weston, he sums it up in, a, in, in his report. What's and he say? This is Lieutenant General Alma Hunter Weston, HQ 8th Corps. He says... It was unavoidable, owing to the shortage of howitzers and ammunition, that the trenches east of the ravine were insufficiently bombarded by howitzer high-explosive shell. This was the cause of the failure and the heavy casualties at this point. A complete success yesterday would have required another eight howitzers and 600 more rounds of ammunition. I'm assuming he's talking about early the 28th of June, early stages there. When he yeah, it's 28th to of June. He's concentrated on that in his mind. Yeah. Now, what did Hamilton think, uh, Sir, General Sir Ian Hamilton at GHQ? Well, he wrote, Hunter Weston, Jurul and Braithwaite agree that had we only shelled to repeat our bombardment of this morning now, we could go on another 1,000 yards before dark. Result? Ahibaba tomorrow or at the latest the day after. Oh, that's such a bollocks. Uh, I mean, not to mince my world words, but that that is not the case. Uh, I, I, the the main thing is, it's like saying, uh, "Oh, Gary, I'd love to give you a million pounds." I'd love you to give me a million yeah, pounds, but I haven't got a million pounds. Oh, I suppose I could sell the flat. You could. Um, 
<laughs> but but the point is, if you haven't got it, you haven't got it. So there's no point. Uh, oh dear. So at this point, then presumably they all just left Gallipoli and, and no, it carries on. on for another uh, eight months. Uh, no, 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 uh, so months. we're going to be back both literally and figuratively at some point. Gary, you're so poetic at times. Yeah, we will. We will. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Gary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?